This week on C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast, writer E.G. Oma Uluo looks at how everyday Americans are fighting oppression in our systems and institutions to bring about change in communities. She was interviewed by author and activist Soraya Shumuli. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. If you read nonfiction books and thought-provoking discussions with authors spark your interest, you'll find the Book TV newsletter a valuable learning resource for staying informed. Hi, John here, one of the producers at Book TV. Think of the Book TV newsletter as your weekly literary update, your source for advance notice of program highlights, featured book festivals, and in-depth profiles of nonfiction authors. Explore the Book TV newsletter to organize your viewing and ensure you never miss a significant literary event. Be a Book TV insider with our weekly newsletter because Book TV is television for serious readers like you. Subscribe today at cspan.org slash connect. That's cspan.org slash connect. I wanted to start off by saying how much I really loved this book. I know how difficult it is to deal with these topics and yet retain a sense of joy and creativity. And I think that obviously that was the point of, of this work. Um, so I wanted to really start by asking you if you could talk a little bit about how you came to this book at this time. Thank you, and I'm so glad that you've been enjoying the book. Uh, you know, I really actually at first came to it from a place of like exhaustion mm -hmm. and hurt. I've been writing about violent white supremacy for years, and I felt really wrong dry, and I felt like I really couldn't do it anymore. I needed a break. But I didn't want the last book that I came out with for a while on this topic um, to be as fraught, as proud as I am of my past books, of course. I wanted some joy, and I wanted to spend some time really celebrating the people who keep us going. And then 2020 happened, and I think the pandemic that we are in underscored how important community is for me and my family and community. And it really showed me that, you know, this is how we keep going. It's the work that people are putting in every single day. And so I wanted to not only show what that work looks like, and, but also show people how they can join and support that work as well. So I think that really does come out very clearly in the book. And um, it, it was really striking to me that while the book title seems to appeal to people on the basis of a kind of privatized idea that you can be the rev revolution. Uh, your message is really clear that it's about community and connection. And so I wanted to begin the way you begin uh, in your chapters with abolitionism. And can you talk about that? And can you talk about why you started there? I know that the structure of books uh, is very important and a lot of thought goes into it. Yeah, you know, for me it was interesting because as I was writing and speaking with people, I wasn't quite sure what order these chapters were going to go in and even like how these chapters would look. But the underlying thread of abolitionism, which is really the fight to, you know, end exploitation, incarceration, imprisonment, that's all been modeled after chattel slavery, you know, wherever we find it. That fight is core to this work. And it was coming up time and time again. And so for me, in organizing this book and putting it together, I realized that it, you needed that foundation, really, to be able to move through the rest of the book and better understand the important work that people are doing in different sectors of society all across the country. So there, that, that chapter, I think, establishes the structure of the ideas that you have. And they really sort of cut horizontally across all of these chapters. I was really struck by the chapter on disability. P 
because, and I want to kind of read from that for a minute. Um, I think that you yourself say that it seemed working on that chapter affected you the most uh, and that you hadn't realized until then how central ableism is to these systems of domination and hierarchy. Can you talk about that uh, and then talk about your trip from the beginning of that chapter to writing it and researching it? Absolutely. I would say, you know, as I said in the book, this was the chapter that really changed the whole book for me. As I started sitting down with disabled BIPOC activists, I realized like, oh, wow, there's a lot that I didn't know and I wasn't centering. And it was so intriguing for me and personally challenging to hear the different ways in which people are doing this work and how central to abolition work disability, disabled activists are and disability rights is. And it really had me thinking like, these people are teaching me. And so I need to take a step back and listen and learn and find the commonalities and the themes. Mm -hmm. And I really left feeling that disabled activists, especially disabled activists of color, black and indigenous disabled activists, most importantly, are really at the core of what liberation work means because they are fighting fundamentally for autonomy. They're fighting for freedom in so many forms and fighting to change our mindsets around the value of human beings, this hierarchy that we have of bodies and minds that shows up in ableism, in sexism, in classism, and it's all a form of ableism. And it was just such a huge shift for me and for myself personally and how I view myself in the work as well. Can you talk a little bit more about the internalization of ableism? Because you do write a lot about that. And I think that, like you, like me, many people uh, go through life without understanding that, the stigma that's attached to it. And not just the personal and interpersonal effects that that stigma has, but the really systemic and institutional effects that it has, the invisibility of of disability and the explicit erasure of that disability in conversations that are really necessary. Yeah, it is so important that we have this disability justice analysis in all of our movement work. Disabled communities are gonna be the most impacted within communities that are impacted by systemic oppression. So when we're talking about things like police brutality Disabled people ha make up half, dis deaf and disabled people make up half of the people killed by police. And yet we don't talk about it as a disability justice issue. When you add racism into that, imagine the risk for disabled black and indigenous people when they encounter police officers. If we're not talking about how ableism impacts that, we're missing a huge part of the issue and we are less effective in our work. But also in the justifications that we use in fighting for our survival, we often lean into ableism in a way that harms us. How many times have you heard people say, oh, this person deserved better because they had this college degree or you know, they were a productive member of society doing this. All of that is really ableist in nature. And it actually underlines the idea 
that there are people who can be deemed unnecessary, that there are people who don't deserve to be fought for, who don't deserve freedom, who don't deserve to live because society hasn't deemed them productive. And that's an incredibly ableist term. And it's dangerous on multiple levels. One, just inherently because of how much risk it puts disabled people in our community into, but also because the powers that be will always find a way to deem us you know, unacceptable. They will find a way to say that we aren't productive even if we meet this particular criteria. So it's really, really important that we address that because even in our movement work, a lot of that ableism shows up as well. Yes, I, I, I think that's, uh, that's really diffusely true, as you say, across these different movements, uh, certainly re reproductive justice, climate justice, migration, uh, climate, the, the climate change uh, dynamics that are happening now um, around the world. Uh, we don't hear as much about ableism as perhaps we should. Um, I think that also you write a lot about the, I think, framing, the framing of these conversations and the language that we use. And I was also struck in this chapter by your description of the way um, fighting against ableism, like fighting against white supremacy, sometimes uh, doubles down without people intend intending it to, sometimes actually exacerbates the problem. Can you talk also about that? Because I actually think in the past few years, people have become maybe more aware and capable of confronting their own biases. But it would be helpful, I think, for all of us to talk more openly about the unconscious ways in which we perpetuate ideas that are based on dominance and superiority and, inf and inferiority. Absolutely, and I would say it's really important that we do this sort of self-analysis, this, this reflection without shame. We have all been programmed by society to be ableist, to be racist, to be sexist, to be classist, right? And so we need to be able to look at that without feeling shame while still being you know, accountable to harm that we cause. We all have it in us. And even when I was talking with disabled activists, they were saying that they struggle with trying to measure the work they do in these ableist frameworks. You know, can you put a dollar on it? Can you measure it in this particular way? Would someone say that you're being productive and not, you know, are you doing what you need to do? Do you have inherent value as a human being because you exist? You don't have to prove that. And I think that is so fundamental to this work. And yet it's so easy for us to feel like in movement work that we have to prove our worth. We think we can convince people if we can just prove that we are good enough and special enough and you know productive enough that we deserve to live. But the fact that we have to is an insult to our very humanity itself and the idea idea that we need to prove it and when we buy into that we're actually giving credence to that thought that there's something we could do that would make it so that we deserve to not live or not have freedom or not have full rights and so we have to be really aware and be open to when we're being taught about it because it harms us and it absolutely harms people with less privilege than us. So I, I think that's a great transition actually to your commentary on capitalism and capitalist values and morality, uh, which become really woven into our identities and our relationships. Uh, you write about abolitionism, for example, as today's fight for liberation. And I think a lot of people think about that structurally. Uh, they think about prisons in particular. Um, but in fact, what you're talking about is really 
what it means to become a human being, to be an individual, to feel the care of your community because you have inherent worth. And so can we, can we sort of shift ground um, and talk about what you found when you talked to people working on economic policy and labor issues? Um, and I would lump in with those uh, the dimension of, of consumerism that you also write about. How do those things get woven together, not only in subjectivity, but in our movements for liberation? Yeah, when I first set out doing um, interviews and I was looking at labor, my first thought were labor activists, right? The people out, you know, protesting, trying to get people to join unions, trying to get better conditions for workers. And that work is so important. And I do think that we are actually seeing a revival of our labor movements being led by young, intersectional, BIPOC and disabled workers, which is beautiful to see. And I hope that people will support these movements. but. What surprised me as well was finding out how many people were also saying, let's redefine business. Let's redefine commerce. Let's redefine employment in these more abolitionist ways. It's not just let's stop these companies and corporations from harming and exploiting workers or try to reduce the harm and exploitation. Let's also build something inherently more liberatory at the same time. And it honestly hadn't occurred to me that we could do that. A lot of times we try to package revolutionary work and sell it, you know, and it becomes this product. You could buy a revolution. And that's not true. <laughs> but asking, you know, could we set up business where everyone is heard, where no one is exploited, where consent is centered, right? Where everyone is valued. Can we do that? And watching people experiment with that was really inspiring as well. And so I think it's important when we look at things like capitalism to recognize how far reaching it is, that it's absolutely touching on every other issue and, and a huge impetus behind the oppression we see all over the world, but also recognizing it's not just about what is harming us, but we need to look at what would we build instead? What can we build instead? And people are doing some really beautiful, inspiring things. So did you, were you struck by anybody's approach to the idea of growth and degrowth, acceleration and slowing down? Um, you had some examples of people using that kind of language and trying to change the metrics of, of work. Um, is there anything that really stuck with you or that provoked you to think in a different way? Yeah, I think it really opened up my mind to the different possibilities out there. You know, talking with business owners like Darnisha Wary, who was really seeing, you know, her definition of success and growth in the young people that she was bringing in and the community that she was enriching with her work. Looking at people who are trying to bring business owners together, small business owners together to share resources and really redefine success as a communal thing instead of a profit or loss. You know, looking at success of a business as to how it sustains all workers and how connected everyone feels to the enterprise. These are all different ways of thinking that kind of really fly in the face of traditional capitalism and this idea that you win by getting more than someone else at being the best at something and not you look holistically at the people who are a part of this project and see how well they're doing and how connected they are and what that community looks like as a measurement of health. It's such a different way to look at it, but to me it's so beautiful and it really feels a lot more sustaining. Would you say then that the model that you just described in terms of 
um, economic standards and the workplace uh, applies too to the education system. It seemed to me that you you wrote really compellingly and in ways that were parallel about the way that our schools uh, remain really stuck in sort of white supremacist capitalist ideologies uh, that go really beyond incidents of racism um, that are specific to a person, right? It's really quite systemic. It has to do with pe uh, pedagogy and um, the structure of schools. Can you can you describe that? Can you talk about how you came to write that chapter and place it in the context of these other structural issues? Certainly. You know, this chapter, I'd say, was one of the harder ones for me to write emotionally. After sitting down with educators, and realizing how dispirited they often found themselves, how hard they were working, and how beaten down they were feeling, and watching all of this progress they had worked for being stripped away by these you know, horrific laws that are being passed all over the country trying to stop us from educating our students and making our students feel safe in their classrooms. I, I felt you know, gutted, you know, and I was like, I'm not sure how I'm going to approach this. And so it was really important for me to remind myself the system that education is in and that makes it uniquely susceptible, honestly, to this push that we're seeing to make sure that children of color don't see themselves in lesson plans, that we don't have accurate history, that trans and disabled students and queer students don't feel safe in schools. That structure already existed and made it vulnerable. And we have had you know, beautiful, loving teachers who, and other educators who have been fighting so hard to try to create safety within that, but it can only go so far, especially when it doesn't have a lot of support from the public. The truth is, a small minority of scared and often bigoted adults have been mobilized to show up at school board meetings and city council meetings and demand these really harmful changes. And we actually need to meet this with love for our students and real concern for what's being taught in schools. And I wanted to show how hard our educators are working in the meantime to hold down space. and educators who are working outside of schools where they do have more freedom to continue to say this is what pure learning for learning's sake for love of our community really looks like so that we actually have a goal to reach toward. I was really struck in reading your interviews by some cons consistent messages. One I think was just the exhaustion. Um, you write a lot about the exhaustion of educators and teachers which I think was true before COVID and is now after COVID and the in entire fight against critical race theory um, doubly true. I, I was going to read something before and I didn't. We just sort of jumped right into our conversation. But I wanted to read something from this chapter uh, because I think, too, that a lot of the fights that you're talking about in school boards, it's easy, I think, for liberal and progressive people like me to think, well, it's not happening near me or in my community, but in fact, it's happening everywhere. And it's quite a calculated and strategic fight. So what you write is, what little autonomy teachers have to create inclusive classrooms has been stripped away in many states and many school districts. This is not just a southern conservative areas, lest you try to rest in the idea that you live in an area safe from these attacks. One in four teachers have reported that they have felt compelled to change lesson plans to comply with anti-CRT rules and laws. And then you go on to write about some of the more truly absurd outcomes in, in the extreme cases, uh, like in Florida, 
uh, and then less less absurd. But can you talk about some of those for people who are watching today, uh, and and might n not be as immersed in this? Uh, I was particularly struck, I think, like all of us, by uh, the Rosa Parks uh, episode. Right, and that, I mean, it was a truly appalling example of really what is happening around the country. And so we had people trying to, you know, booksellers and publishers trying to stay in line with these rules. And some of them, like in Florida, that they're so vague saying that you're not allowed to be made to feel uncomfortable around ra about race, about your racial identity. And so you have Rosa Parks being rewritten as a woman, you know, who was asked to move from her seat because she is black and refused to cutting all mention of race out of it. And then you lose all context. She just becomes a woman who didn't want to move and no one really knows why. Like that's, that seems like an extreme example, but we are seeing similar things throughout the country. And not only are we seeing books being rewritten and things taken out, we're seeing a lot of teachers who don't know how to comply with these rules, just leaving these lessons out altogether because they're too afraid that they will be told they can't or too afraid that they could lose their job. And it is having a real impact on how our students are being taught and how they're understanding the world. And also like how our black and brown students are able to see themselves in our country's history and their future. These aren't just stories of hardship. And I wish people understood that. Learning about our history is not just about, you know, water cannons and police dogs. It's about perseverance. It's about community coming together and fighting for justice and winning and building beautiful things. And all of that is being cut from our history. And that's something that students of all races and all ethnicities need to learn. So uh, in, in the book, uh, because community and care are so central to what you write, it seemed to me that schools like libraries, uh, contested places, are really sites of memory, right? They, they cultivate community and safety and space for people, uh, not just to learn, as you say, in an academic sense, but to develop a sense of belonging and meaning. And uh, it really makes me think about statues and the fight over statues uh, around the country and, and truly around the world. And when I was reading, uh, it, it, the, the leap from that idea of sites of memories to statues really struck me in your conversation, oddly enough, of reproductive justice because of the experimentation of black women and women of color in particular in the country, Native American women, sterilization, uh, all of the types of histories we would like to ignore and erase and minimize. And uh, I thought that your writing in that chapter was very moving and uh, very clear. And so can you now talk about reproductive justice as interconnected with these other uh, crises in our society uh, in, some, in some detail? Absolutely. You know, for me, and I think for many others, it's important to understand reproductive justice is first and foremost about bodily autonomy. It is not just about the right to terminate a pregnancy if you should choose. It's about the right to decide when and if you'll get pregnant, to get the care that you need for that pregnancy or not, to be able to raise a child should you choose to have that child, to be able to have that child grow up in a place without violence, right? All of these things are all part of reproductive justice. And 
often it's ignored and the attacks on it are ignored. And it's important to remember that what we've been seeing lately, especially with the Roe v. Wade decision, what we're seeing really is the final stages of these attacks that have been going on for multiple generations. Bodily autonomy of people with uteruses has been attacked for many, many, many generations in BIPOC populations, especially Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous populations. And everywhere that that is allowed, it strengthens the idea that all of our bodily autonomy can be controlled. And so when people were shocked about recent Supreme Court decisions, I certainly wasn't. And I think a lot of black and brown and indigenous people were not because we saw the writing on the wall. We saw what was being done to deny our bodily autonomy for BIPOC and queer, trans and disabled populations. So it's important to look at that and see where is this happening across the board? Because a lot of us have never had the reproductive freedom that a lot of people are afraid of losing right now. And if we really want that freedom, we have to go to the root of it. And we have to say, absolutely not. We will not take these rights away from anyone. And listen to those who have been fighting for reproductive freedom the longest and the hardest. And those are our more marginalized communities. And they have the tools down. They know at its core what it is in ways that many of us are just now catching up to. Uh, so can you can you uh, talk a little bit about the emphasis on the word choice? I think you and I for many years have written about reproductive justice, reproductive rights, um, but I still think that as you say, Roe v. Wade was a shock to many people. Uh, I think I, like you, uh, couldn't believe that it was a shock to many people because there were many of us flying big red flags for many years. But can you explicitly talk about the language of choice and how it has really been, from I think a policy and institutional perspective, a 40-year fight to have the language of reproductive justice and freedom become central to this um, and, and to explain this as a bodily autonomy issue much more broadly than the fight for ab abortion. Absolutely. I would say the framing of it around choice has been in many ways quite harmful because that's an argument that often starts from a place of privilege. If you are a middle or upper class person who doesn't have to worry about racialized violence, medical violence, who doesn't have to worry about your child being taken from you, who doesn't have to worry about being exploited by an employer, then the choice of whether or not to have an abortion seems like the pinnacle decision to make. But for so many other populations, all of the other things that would go into decision making as to whether or not you have a child, all those choices are taken from us. And so we're talking about rights, the fundamental right to choose when and if you reproduce, to choose you know, what you do with your own sexual health, to be able to raise children in a healthy environment should you choose to, all of these things are denied so many other populations. And what we end up with is that one or two options left to us. And we're told that that's the thing to fight for and not all of the other ways in which our autonomy and freedom has been taken from us. And so it's really, really important if we're actually talking about reproductive freedom that we talk about it as a fundamental right. It is not choice, it's 
rights. It's about our freedoms. It's about recognizing our humanity and our freedom to decide what to do with our bodies from beginning to end and our freedom to be able to make those choices by removing the systemic barriers and the systemic harm that really takes a lot of the, that decision making away from us. So I, I realized in, in your book that um, I'd recently had an experience very much like yours probably writing this book, which is the book is really a linear media. You have to write things in an order. It's very hard to make dense connections that are not linear, uh, which is, I think, the challenge that you identify here. Um, I'm going to read another section that touches on reproductive justice, but I think you yourself write can be confusing and complex, but is really vital. And it has to do with uh, trans rights and queer families. And um, I would extend that also to your description of the education system as related to the carceral system, right? These things are all really, really related, but it's sometimes hard to explain the scope of it, which I, I think you do well. But um, you quote, um, uh, person that you interview here as saying there can't be gender justice for black people without understanding how it's related to disability justice and trans justice. It is so vital for us to be honest about our bodies, so vital for us to be honest about our identities, about who we are, who we have historically been, and what liberation means. That is not possible, that it is not possible to exist in a world where black trans people, black disabled people are being poorly treated and other black people will be fine. That's not real, okay? <laughs> um, it's not real at all. And you say that, that that statement even has always been so confusing and all of the ways in which the bodies of black, brown, and indigenous people have been abused and exploited. Um, how, how can you look at all of these people and not see your liberation tied in them? And yet I think most people don't. Most people don't have that response. Right, you kind of have to be immersed in the thinking or living that entire existence to understand the complications. Uh, what would you say to people who are really genuinely curious but haven't gone out of their way to figure that problem out? Right, uh, I would absolutely first start with this fundamental truth, which is there's no such thing as trickle-down social justice. So. If we keep focusing on the people we're used to centering, right, even within movement work, those most privileged within our movements and saying, let's meet their needs because we're used to seeing them, they're used to being heard, that won't trickle down to people who are more marginalized because it won't meet their needs. The opposite is what's true. Those most harmed by systemic oppression first of all, have a better understanding of what's happening and all of the ways in which these systems can cause harm, but also addressing their needs, you know, asking how can we help, what can we do to be a part of the solution instead of the problem, does help us all. I know, you know, that if I am standing beside, you know, black and indigenous, disabled, queer and trans activists, and supporting what they are saying we need to do, I am more likely to find my needs met than if I am centering, you know, uh, upper middle class cis black men, which often is what happens in the fight for, you know, um, for black rights. And so it's really vital that I remember that. And so we need to look to who is most impacted, hear what they've already been saying. We don't even really have to ask because they're writing and speaking and doing whatever they can to raise awareness to these issues and have been for 
a long, long time and know that that is the center of the work. That is where some of our most important work is being done. And we can absolutely follow the lead while leveraging the privilege we have to do that work in our spaces. And that is so important because those who are most marginalized, a lot of times people will say things like, listen to black women, right? As if we can be heard in every space we, you know, in the world. And not saying, okay, listen, and then take what you're hearing into your spaces of privilege and create change. And I think that that's an important part to look at. And so for me in this work, that's always been kind of my focus, right? My North Star, if you will. And to watch people push against that because maybe they feel dissentered. Maybe they're used to being the ones asked all of the time. Instead saying, no, we need to ask someone else as well can be off-putting. But really trust when I say that your needs will be better met doing that. So I, I want to I switch gears in a moment to the remarkable uh, positive ends to each of your chapters where you really talk about the very practical and pragmatic things that people can do. Um, but just before we get there, I'd like to talk about this idea of privilege and how people choose to employ it. Because several times throughout the book, you touch on philanthropic movements and phil philanthropic organizations and how unintentionally they reproduce patriarchal values and white supremacist social mores. Uh, even though people come to that work feeling that they are uh, trying their hardest to help and to make change. So can you describe what that looks like? Uh, because sometimes I think it can be really easily masked in the effort to do good and frankly throw money at things. Uh, can, you, can you talk about any experiences that you have had or the, some of the people that you've talked to um, in broaching that problem and in dealing with the good, good intentioned but poorly executed philanthropies? Absolutely. I would say this is a problem that we see time and time again. And when I was talking with movement workers, you know, I'm talking to a lot of queer and trans, BIPOC, disabled activists, and they are really saying this harms us. It harms us when all of the focus goes to these more privileged spaces. It harms us when people impose themselves upon us without investigating their privilege. And so I'd say, first of all, it's really important to remember. I think a lot of people get a little up in arms when we talk about privilege because they think you're trying to make me feel bad. You're trying to make me say I don't belong here. You know, privilege are the ways in which systems have been built to serve you, or at least not built to harm you, where they may harm others. Understanding that not only gives us a better understanding of these systems, it lets us know where we have power, power to do good or power to cause harm. And when we don't investigate it, harm is just more easily done. And so it's really important that we're aware of that. And so often what happens is people will be motivated by genuine care and concern and they want to do something, but they haven't taken the time to say, you know, what is my privilege in this space? What is my power in this space? How can I be responsible? I have maybe I haven't built meaningful connections in this community I want to work with enough to know, you know, where I would be of use. But maybe you're used to being centered. Maybe you've been told by every movie we've ever seen about like, you know, about racism that, you know, you could make a black friend and you'll grow and change and you'll be leading a protest in no time, right? All of these things that kind of center privilege and often center white are what seem appealing to people. 
to come into this work. And when they bring that in, it's really harmful and decentering of the people who've been doing really, really important work outside of the limelight for a really long time. And so there is a place for everyone but you need to be responsible and you need to come to a place with a place, you know, with some humility, come being willing to learn, and then you can build real genuine connections. There is that benefit there of connection and community, but you have to build it genuinely just like you would any relationship. And that really does be, mean like taking some time to really think about your privilege and to hear people when they try to tell you about it. So when, when you were interviewing people about the environmental justice movement, I think sometimes that it's easy to think that a global climate and environmental movement must include everybody, right? Because na necessarily everybody is affected. Um, but in fact, those movements too have been riven by racism, white supremacy, and a sort of, in many cases, techno-utopianism, right? Can, can you talk about how you balanced the line between the exhaustion and despondence that you write about uh, and the possible change, the good change that's going on? Uh, because you have some excellent examples here. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's really important to remember absolutely everyone will be impacted by climate change but not everyone will be impacted at the same time, and not everyone will be impacted to the same degree. And so we have a large segment of our, you know, environmental groups who are focused on fear of what will come to more privileged places and people versus looking at what has already been happening happening to many indigenous populations and populations of color around the world. And the ways in which these populations have been fighting you know, for survival and fighting to preserve the planet, knowing that they will be hurt first and hardest every time by this. When we forget that, it becomes really easy not only to center whiteness, to center a particular class, even to center particular regions of the globe over others and say only when it impacts us will we care. We also toss out really effective and important, you know, ideas around environmental stewardship and how to exist with nature and with each other. And we forget and we don't see how it's tied to capitalism, how it's tied to racism. We can't address it fully if we don't look at that, because then what we have is people just shifting the problem and saying, I don't want it, you know, in my neighborhood. I don't want environmental change here. Okay, well, if you don't have an intersectional analysis of it, it's just going to be picked up and put right in the backyards of populations of color and indigenous populations. And that's what's been happening for multiple generations. And so there's a lot of frustration for environmental activists of color and environmental justice activists who have been doing all of this work and they're watching the vast majority of funding going to fighting climate change, going to these larger organizations who are completely ignoring the current impact of climate change and pollution on indigenous populations and populations of color. Also, reproductive justice issue, a, a massive reproductive justice issue um, all, all across the world. Um, all right, we're going to switch gears now to, I think, something that brings you and um, truly me to a great deal of hope and creativity, which is the arts. Uh, you write that art is the keeper of community. And um, so can you describe your immersion in that idea and uh, what it means to you and to this book. 
Yes. You know, for me, art, if it weren't for words and stories, I wouldn't be doing this work. It's what's kept me going. It's what helped me feel connected as a, as a little black girl growing up in a majority white town, feeling completely invisible and unloved the moment I left my home. Words and stories helped me know that I was a part of something larger, that I did matter. And art has always been that for me. It has been, you know, sung in songs and painted in pictures. And it really is the story of our movements. One, it is so important for us to counter the harmful narratives being told about us by telling our true authentic stories in multiple art forms. Two, as a form of protest, it's one of the most effective and accessible ways to protest to, that cuts straight through to the heart of the issue. And three, when it comes to envisioning what we want and what we want to build, I would say that the arts does it better than any other sector. What we want for our future is in the stories that we tell, in the way in which we are illustrating these dreams that we have. And it's so important that we keep that alive because it's not just about what we're fighting against, it's about what we're trying to build. And if we lose that, if we lose the arts in our community, our authentic arts, we lose our compass, we lose our way. We're fighting, but we don't know what direction we're actually moving in. And so for me, the arts are central, not only for my own personal well-being, but also for informing my activism work and the work of so many others. What's really striking, again, to me in your description is this sense of uh, building a radical new future. Uh, and the arts certainly do that. I, I want to kind of go full circle because, in fact, in your description, what I really thought of was the imagination of abolitionists, uh, which, frankly, really was first articulated by writers and thinkers and, you know, those who could imagine a completely different world. Uh, did, you, did you think of that as you were writing um, in terms of sort of a an arc because it seems that they're inseparable. This idea of the art of imagination and the creativity and community and belonging and meaning that you need to be able to envision a future. Absolutely. You know, for me, it just kept coming up over and over again, not only in my own mind as I was listening to people, but time and time again, hearing people in all different sectors of work saying, our story is important. Telling our story is important. Talking about our dreams is important. A few years ago, I had a conversation with N.K. Jemisin, the you know, amazing speculative black speculative fiction writer, and we were talking about her process and about you know, when you're writing a speculative fiction novel, you have to decide what the ground looks like. You know, not just what are the politics, but what are their buildings? Is there air? And when you're doing that as a black woman and you're trying to take your blackness and put it in a new space and envision what that looks like, that can be a very powerful thing. And as we were having that conversation, I was realizing how important that sort of envisioning is for all of us doing movement work because we're told time and time again this is the best you have to hope for don't wish for more than this instead of saying what if you could design it from the ground up what would the grass look like you know in our abolitionist world what if we could reach for that what if that guided us instead of saying how can we tweak these deeply badly broken systems to find a way so it won't kill us what if we said Let's, let's design something where we can thrive. And that to me is so beautiful. And so embracing imagination, 
believing in our creativity, believing in what we can do together is fundamental to this work. And I do think that's why that sort of thinking is so under attack and why we're told we ask for too much, we dream too hard. No, we need to dream harder. We need that sort of audacity. We need to believe in ourselves and what we can create. I know that you, you too, the last 12, 15 years certainly have been immersed in some of the ugliest aspects of the internet and technology and um, I, I understand that world uh, and all of its downsides but at the same time recently I was at a uh, I was giving a talk and someone asked me about storytelling and what I thought the most effective form of storytelling in the world was today and I laughed and I said honestly right this second if, I, if you have to ask me I would say it's TikTok and um, because of just the unbridled creativity, the generative properties, all the badness is there. We know what the badness is. But um, can you talk a little bit about the way visionary people, freedom-seeking people, young people can use disruptive technology to overcome the kinds of controls and authoritarian tendencies in the culture uh, that we're seeing really enjoy uh, retrenchment today? Can you talk about if you have had a shift in the way you think about technology and its uses, because I know there have been many ups and downs. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, for many of us doing this sort of work, we have to exist in many online spaces because it does allow us access where traditional spaces may not. And there's always been this price to pay. But one thing I will say that I, I think was really underscored in my conversations for this book and that I see you know, on social media and all, these, all of these different tech spaces every day is that where we have been cut out of systems, we have had to be creative. And I'm not saying do that to us. I think that <laughs> given full access, we could come up with some amazing things. But I do think that it has created this kind of culture of creativity because you have to, right? If this piece of media wasn't built for you, you have to come up with something. And so what we find is often in newer tech spaces, marginalized populations are saying, how can I make this work for me? Because no other space is. And let me be really creative to get as much impact as possible. And we have multiple generations of people doing that in whatever space we can because we have been so marginalized. It has really forced us to operate outside of norms and come up with new solutions. And I think you see that in the creativity we're seeing, especially with a lot of young BIPOCs and disabled queer and trans people today, is you're seeing something fresh and it's so appealing when we we have all of this kind of mass marketing, even of movement work, to see authentic creativity coming through. And that's built off of multiple generations of people doing that. It's just the tech changes, the access changes. And so it's always hopeful for me. I love seeing how creative people are in trying to express themselves and you know, express the problems they're seeing and express their hope for the future. So um, you, close, you close the book with a conversation of privilege, which we've talked about a little bit, but also I think this really wonderful idea of ages and stages, uh, because when you dedicate your life, I think, to thinking about these things, to movement building, to activism, uh, it, it does change over time. What you uh, think is important, what you're capable of doing, what you want to do, evolves. Uh, can you talk about that and talk about how the interviews that you conducted, the people that you met with and talked to, uh, maybe informed that, that conclusion and your ideas about it? 
Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people, when they think of activists, right, they're thinking of young college age people with a ton of energy who are, you know, very outraged and are going to go change the world. And then they think that they kind of disappear, that they don't have that energy anymore. And I've heard people dismiss that. Oh, you know, I'm too old to be an activist. And so talking to people who have been doing movement work for decades, it's beautiful to watch how they have found a space in that work through their life. And I think it's so important for us to look at that and say, yeah, you can have that young, fired up, ready to go stage. Um, and then perhaps you can have some time where what you're doing is a little quieter, a little closer to home. Maybe you have family or other obligations. You know, that if you are disabled, you don't have to be out on the front line if that is not something you're physically able to do. That there's amazing, beautiful frontline work that you can do from home and in other spaces. Right? And as we get older and move through life, there is a space for us, not only for where we are physically, financially, emotionally, but for the experience we may have in our life. And so talking with people who said, yeah, you know, in my 20s, I was, you know, in protest, running from cops, doing that, and now my knees won't let me. But you know what I am doing? I'm mentoring, or I'm, you know, creating these things, or I'm teaching. It's so beautiful to see, because I want people to know that. It isn't a give up your whole life as long as you can to do this work. It's this beautiful, enriching, important work can be a part of your life for your whole life. And I see that now. I go to protests and there's people who are 85 next to me and there's people who are five next to me. And it's beautiful to see the joy that they have for community that is, that is you know, showing in the way that they show up and there is space for them. And we need to be intentional about making sure that we are inviting people in at all stages of life because there is absolutely a need for it. So I think that um, the, the idea of being a movement person or being engaged in activism and protest can sometimes be inhibiting for someone who doesn't know where to start, uh, which is the value of this wonderful book. But can you talk to about the, just the inherent resistance and revolutionary aspects of living alternative lives? queer people, trans people in communities uh, and what that represents for the rest of the people in a community who don't know what to do, don't understand why vertical laws affect them, can't make these connections. Just the fact of living and finding joy. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, fundamental to systemic oppression is the idea that some people are less deserving, less human than others. And just living fully and saying, absolutely not, I will bring my whole self into every space I'm in, you know, and I will do so proudly. And I will insist that, you know, I be as accommodated as others. I insist that these spaces be as made for me as they are for everyone else is absolutely revolutionary and cuts to the heart of the justifications for systemic oppression. And so it's really important, you know, that we do that. And it can be very hard for more marginalized people to be able to do so because we're also told, please also educate everyone, please also lift all of this oppression, you know, in all these other spaces. 
We all have our part to play, and one of the most important parts for marginalized community is our own joy, our own healing, and our own care. And that really does mean if you have more privilege, please do your part so that we can also do the part that is more important for us and that no one else can do for us. That real authenticity is important and we see it attacked. We see the ways in which people just living their lives in bodies or with minds that are considered quote unquote different is attacked and erased. And so just existing fully and unapologetically in a disabled body, in a fat body, in a black body, right, is one is something that truly challenges people and really fights that idea that only certain people get to have systems built for them. Only certain people get to exist in public or have full rights and autonomy. So um, I wonder if, uh, I, I want to squeeze this in before we wrap up. You wrote this, did you write this book during the earliest years of COVID or did, you know, how, what was the process of of writing this book as COVID happened, because it's surely it must have affected your thinking and your writing. Yeah, I started this book in 2020, towards the end of 2020. So it was absolutely first and foremost in my mind. And for me, you know, as a black woman, as a black queer woman, facing kind of this isolation that many of us were in and in trying to care for ourselves and our communities, it was important to feel connected to communities. And I was inspired first and foremost by how my local black movement work community was trying so hard to build connection and care while keeping each other safe. And so at a time of such great hardship, at a time when we felt failed by so many systems, there are many people like myself and my family who really you know, will credit our ability to get through this to community and to movement workers who fully understand how important community is, especially in these times. And so I was thinking about it constantly. I was thinking about how much we need to keep nurturing it because we are still very much in a pandemic and people like to act like we're not. And how much these very same communities that got us through are at increased risk still not only from COVID, but from all of the other systemic oppressions and how they intersect with this pandemic that is still ongoing. Um, in each of the chapters, as we've discussed, you do it, an amazing job of suggesting what people can do in relation to the topic at hand. Was there any one or two things, and I'm sure this was really difficult and I'm gonna put you on the spot, but it seems like in each case, there was a, a starting point for people just just to get going. Is there any advice that you would give to, to readers who are interested in this book, any particular insight um, about how to do that, regardless of whether your starting point is um, abolitionism or reproductive justice uh, or education policy? I would absolutely say a, thing that, a theme that kind of came up over and over again, start local, start small, start with your interests, right? So where you already have maybe a little bit of knowledge or a little bit of care and where it's in your community, start there, do your research and try to be as intersectional as possible and ask the people already doing the work, how can I help? That's a great way to start to learn more, you know, and how to get your feet into this work. And it's a beautiful way to work. And like many people said, if that's where you stay, 
you're still doing vital and important work. But if you want to branch out into other places, you'll have a solid foundation for that work that you can continue doing for your whole life. Well, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you today. I'm really excited that this book is out in the world, and I wish you the best of luck with your, your book tour and launch. Uh, and so thank you for writing it. Thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you are interested in podcasts about nonfiction books, listen to C-SPAN's Book Notes Plus podcast for interviews with authors and historians hosted by Brian Lamb.